Welcome back to Piece by Piece, the musical theatre talk show podcast. This is part two of our discussion of My Fair Lady. Our host, Joe Bunker, is joined by guests Charles Edwards, Martin Fisher, Anna O'Byrne and Liz Robertson. We rejoin them as they begin exploring Act Two of My Fair Lady. Hello and welcome back to Piece by Piece. This is Act Two of My Fair Lady, or as previously discussed, Act 1, Scene 10, depending on which way you prefer your My Fair Lady served. Because um, Act 1, Scene 10 is uh, the Embassy Ball. Higgins, Pickering and Eliza are at the Embassy and introducing Eliza to all these fancy guests. Uh, and amongst them, Higgins meets Zoltan Kapathy. Oh, a sinister villain um, <laughs> who is an old student of Higgins and seems like a bit of a threat to their exercise because he prides himself on uncovering frauds. He dances with Eliza and it looks like things are going to become a bit serious in terms of breaking this streak they're on and uh, revealing her to be not of regal birth. But these events really actually get narrated in the next scene, which is back in Higgins' study, when Higgins and Pickering revel in their triumph in the song You Did It. Martin, you wanted to talk a bit about this song. What is it that you find interesting about You Did It as a piece of drama? I always thought the spectre of You Did It was you're just watching Eliza in the background looking very neglected and very forlorn and very underappreciated. And as Higgins doing it, it was very hard, Martin Fisher playing Higgins, to just have her at the back of the stage, ignoring her the whole time. You, you can feel how powerful a slapdown that is when you're performing it. I was always very conscious of that. Mm. But is Higgins aware of her, or is he just oblivious? Oh, no, he's oblivious. But Martin Fisher, the actor, was always really aware of the actress, you know, and, as, and of what Higgins was doing at that point. So much time when you're playing a character like Higgins, you can justify it with this and that and whatever. But that was the point at which I thought, oh, no, you're, you're no, 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 you've lost it now. What are you doing? <laughs> and understandably, Eliza is not best pleased. In the play, it's interesting, it's a little bit less celebratory. The thing that particularly galls her is the fact that Higgins is saying, well, thank God it's over. Mm-hmm. Um, and he repeatedly says that in the play. There's one line like that in the musical, but there's more of the kind of celebrating wasn't this fantastic? Mm. Didn't we two men do such a great job? Do you want to talk a little bit about that, Anna, about your experience of being there, the mute Eliza on stage while the two men celebrate their tremendous achievement? Oh, yeah. I mean, it sort of acts itself, really. (laughs) Um, In our production, she's in this amazing black velvet opera coat with the big giant collar. Yeah, as you say, the the spectre of Eliza (laughs) haunting the scene. I think the point comes that she expects... Higgins to be gloating and to probably ignore her and Pickering sort of doing his Pickering kind of thing Um, and that's okay by her but I always thought it was when the servants you know the people who have sung with her about her triumph in dance all night and have been there in the household don't acknowledge her either and just think about how wonderful he is and no one has thought about apart from Mrs Pierce, has thought about what's going to happen at this point. She has just run into the brick wall and it's a devastating moment for her. And she says exactly as Mrs Pierce said in, in Act 1, what's to become of me? I'm not good for anything anymore. And it's, it's not only that she's not been included in this celebration immediately, she's not enjoying this moment, but also that's it. What, what happens next? You've made me fit for... For nothing, really. Yeah, well, or prostitution, essentially. And, and and I think as well, this is the point where as a flower girl, she's come from abject poverty. And 
the difference of being a flower girl and being a prostitute was not very much at all. In fact, when I sort of did a bit of research on this, there were flower girls who were prostitutes and they used to sell cress. That was how they would let the gentleman know that they were sex workers, basically. <laughs> and she has avoided that because I'm sure she went perilously close to that. And that's a great source of pride for her and, and self-esteem that she has never had to sink to that. And now... She's had this amazing education and she's wearing beautiful clothes, but she's no better than that. That's a reality for her at this point. Yeah. And that flower thing makes a lot of sense. And it explains that fear of the detectives and the, this sense of, you know, I am, I'm, I'm selling him a flower. It's OK. I'm, this is all above board. Yeah. But she she confronts him. And it's a fascinating scene that just crackles with passion and electricity. Probably the biggest duel they've had so far is when she says to him, what am I to do with my clothes? Just let me know. I don't want to be accused of stealing. Yeah. And I, I think that scene is a gem. What did you find in that, Charlie, when you were working on that scene where she threatens to, well, she basically says she's going to leave him? Well, it's the moment when she returns the ring that he gave her in Brighton. And that's to me, was the, pivot, the pivotal point. Because even again, just, just as I was saying earlier about words like soul being dropped in, just the name Brighton, you think of them on a lovely sunny day, having probably a really nice day in Brighton, mm. promenading, and he buys her a ring, you know. It's a lovely detail, isn't it? Beautiful detail. Everything else is on hire. It seems to suggest a day, a, a day of equilibrium, where it was quite a nice day. And everything else he's, he's, he's had ordered in for her. Mrs Pierce has ordered some stuff. Pickering's ordered some stuff. Yeah, he doesn't need to take care of anything like that. It's the ring that he bought her absolutely and uh and she says i don't want it now and that's when he's really hurt says you've cut me to the core or whatever it is well the significance of that scene for higgins is that she is trying to get an emotional reaction from him and nothing will trigger him more at the end of the play in pygmalion Mm. he says i don't and won't trade in affection it's not he's not interested in that so the fact that he senses very clearly that she's trying to get him to react emotionally he's not having it that's interesting yeah and there's a wonderful stage direction where it says eliza drinking in his emotion like nectar and nagging him to provoke a further supply (laughs) i think that's wonderful his sort of flippancy is what drives everybody mad it, it frustrates pickering even but it frustrates mrs pierce and mrs higgins that he's just so casual oh you know what's to become of her oh never mind we'll sort it out later mm. and but she knows that she's a, she can really properly dig into something that's real yeah. and human and emotive she's skirting around his triggers to find which is the one that's going to hurt the most and that's what's so beguiling is you're going oh she's found it she's located it she's found that mm. point of mm. entry there is another version where he's perfectly aware of what he's doing in his in his treatment <laughs> go on well after the 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 climax of the ball and we're now moving into another gear there is a the way he is so dismissive i think their relationship in terms of the audience has has intensified whatever we're not talking romance they've become a team even though he's completely neglecting her at this point right. but they've done it she has done it with his help and uh, and with all this stuff that he throws at her in this scene, one could play it or read it as that he knows exactly what he's doing. Right. But that I'm just putting that, I mean, because there are no answers. Mm. Mm. Right. And I think sometimes it can be interesting when he knows that he's, he's, he's needling her. In turn, yeah. to provoke a reaction from her as she is trying to provoke one from him. And a self-preservation too from yeah. him. Yeah. It finishes with her throwing the slippers at him. <laughs> he says, where are my slippers? She, she lobs them at him. Shies them. Yes, yes, shies <laughs> them. Shies them at me. Shies. Brilliant. <laughs> and he still doesn't quite believe, I suppose, that she's actually going to leave because she said, what's mine? What do I own? I don't want to be accused of stealing the jewels or the clothes. So as an audience member, you think 
she's getting ready to leave, but he doesn't seem to quite cotton on because when she does leave the next morning, he's mm. shocked and appalled that she has actually gone through with it. In the meantime, <laughs> she's popped outside with her, her stuff and found poor old Freddy. Oh, You have to make that noise when you talk about Freddy. Um, still there. <laughs> he's still there. Still there. <laughs> and, and he starts to launch into this song of, of, of adoration for her and she loses it. and says, words, 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 I'm sick of words. Um, and, and poor old Freddy gets it in the neck. But they do take this trip back to Covent Garden and I don't know if we just want to briefly just talk about the experience of playing that scene of going back to where she started mm. Liz because yeah. we started in Covent Garden she's gone on this wonderful journey and here she, she gets a moment where she gets to go and back yes, and visit her yes. old chums the end of that, that big scene with Higgins um, Alan and Fritz were thinking what they could write and, and it should be a sad song because she's leaving but they but they said that sad song is, is kind of a, a, a low moment and it's usually slow and so they decide to use the energy of the 6-4 energy of show me for God's sake and the anger and uh, and she and she has nowhere else to go. I mean, that's you know, the fact of the matter. She's she has nowhere else to go but back to Covent Garden. And of course, the the poignancy when she goes there and they have no idea who she is, even though they think they recognise her, and yet they don't recognise her, and they don't really regard her as as one of them anymore. Um, she's completely lost. She has no idea where to go. Then her father comes out and he recognises her, and tells her he's getting married and all of that. And it's a <laughs> She just says, good luck, Dad. And Freddie goes, are you done here, Eliza? She, yes, I'm all done here. Oh, it's heartbreaking. Yeah. That, that oh, it's feeling, so, it is totally it's, it's heartbreaking. It's absolutely heartbreaking. Where is home for her now? No I mean, where does land. she belong? I mean, all, the, all Eliza wanted was to become, a, 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 you know, so, someone who sold flowers in a, in a shop. Yeah. You know, yeah. proper right. proper florist. She wasn't expected to meet princes and no, queens. No, and, no. And, uh, and she has no idea how she's going to continue. But her dad seems to sail from situation to situation. <laughs> he just rises above it it's all. It's so galling, He's isn't fine. it? And yeah. don't you come back to me, Eliza. You stand on your own two feet. Even mm. he doesn't want her. I know, and he's done nothing to her. It's not like he's done so much to bring no. her up so far and now he's cutting ties. It's like, oh, wait, I'm going to carry on doing nothing even though I've now got this money. Because, of course, he's inherited this money from this American millionaire due to a, a, a sort of prank from Higgins. What's the name of the billionaire again? Ezra D. Wallingford. <laughs> Wallingford. <laughs> Doolittle's furious because he doesn't want money and he's like, now, now I've got people coming to me for money and he only ever wanted enough on the next, next round and now he's got people sponging off him. At the beginning of that, I, f- I always found it so moving. The music, I can't remember what the music's doing. Is it, is it a reprise of... Um, Wouldn't it be lovely? Lovely. Yeah. And you see the, the, the flower market again and it's just so the echoes of, of the opening and it's just so mm-hmm. touching. Mm. Beautifully done. And she sits down and sings and sings a couple of phrases from it and um and realizes that, you know, that life is gone. So we, we go back to Higgins' study and Higgins is sort of apoplectic with rage <laughs> that she has had the had the temerity to leave him. Again, it's quite endearing because they're, they're so inept. They don't know what to do and Pickering tries ringing the police. Um, but then the police start saying, well, who is she to you? And well, she lives with you, but she's not related to you. And who is she? And, and he puts the phone down, outraged at their suggestion that there might be something inappropriate going on. Um, and, <laughs> and, and calls, I love the little scene with Boozy. He rings his friend at the home office. Oh, hello, Boozy. Oh, God. Never guess who this is. Never, never, never. (laughs) (laughs) Good old Pickering. Um, But it's also at this point that uh, Higgins sings uh, Hymn to Him, uh, which is often mislabeled as Why Can't a Woman Be More Like a Man? That's Mm. that's probably what it's more familiarly known as. But Hymn to Him is the title of the song. And uh, yeah, and it's it's this sort of song which leads people to say, you know, My Lady, what a misogynist piece about a man acting out his fancy on this passive woman. Does someone want to reply to that? 
Because that is something that people throw around. But I don't think anybody expected that this is a, a, a blueprint for how men should behave and we should all back it. <laughs> I don't think it's very obvious where Higgins is at at this point, and he's, he's a fairly ridiculous yeah. figure. The scene before it, him going, well, I, 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 I did everything right. It was her who threw the slippers, all that stuff. We know he's a bit of a buffoon. <laughs> Absolutely. So when he starts singing yeah. that song, I don't think anyone's going to take him seriously singing. No one's going to think, yes, I've changed my mind about women because of this. He's clinging pathetically and desperately Yes. To his mantra. Yes, yes. It, exactly, it's his mantra, and it sounds a lot like an ordinary man from Act One, where he's talked about how yeah. terrible women are. But in that, even at the beginning, he's revealed himself to have very little self-knowledge, because all the words he used to describe himself as being even-tempered, good-natured, of no eccentric mm. whim, are all things that he demonstrates time and again he is yes. not. Yeah, we, we never talk about satire when, when people talk about My Fair Lady, and I don't really understand that, because it is a huge satire. That will, I mean, that's sure, isn't it? It? But in but in every sense about class, you look at the brilliance of the Ascot Gavotte about class, about gender relationships. That's the fun of it. That's the fun of Shaw. That's the fun of this. It's yeah. hugely satirical and funny. But also, I think it, it speaks to what, the way that we approach musicals in particular, that we expect musicals to be straightforward mm. and songs reiterate something we've established in a scene and they just they hit you over the head with it. And there are musicals like that where, where, the, where the songs feel like they slow down the action or they reiterate things you already know. Whereas I feel like this is so much more sophisticated than that because all the time you're getting mixed messages. You're getting somebody saying something very dry and emotionless while accompanied by emotive music that's telling you there's passion underneath. Yeah. There's a song sung by a man and you know that everything he's saying is untrue and that he just hasn't figured it out yet. I, I think maybe we're less comfortable with ambiguity and ambivalence and irony in musicals. It's always the song that's taken out of context when people refer to Higgins and My Fair Lady. That's the song that they'll quote because it's a very easy thing to say, oh, well, why can't a woman be more like a man? And just think of it. But it's much more complex than that mm. because all that, like you say, Joe, all the things that he's describing himself and as men as, we have seen very little evidence of that during the play and exactly. his behaviour. Yeah. And he's he's a person who's grown up surrounded by men at public school and wherever else, you know. He, the only, his experiences of women are his mother and Mrs Pierce, and that's pretty And he, much and he it. adores his mother. In, in Pygmalion, there's a line about the fact that he, he could never yeah. date anybody that wasn't exactly like his mother. Yeah, she, he's only interested in older women. And, and it also comes up in, in Shaw's epilogue. He speaks qu- quite length about, you know, if you've got a really good mother, you don't need to get married. <laughs> Which is a whole other kettle of fish. Because Shaw lived with his mother till he was 42 and then married a woman who he didn't, he didn't consummate his relationship yeah. with. And he, he's, there's obviously quite a lot of him, I think, creeping into uh, Higgins. Oh, very much so. Very much so. I also think in that song, he's frightened. He doesn't know what mm. he's going to do without her. He hasn't, he hasn't admitted it yet. So therefore, he's blaming her for everything. You know, why can't, why can't she be more like us? You know, for goodness sake, you know, we all got on very well together. I don't understand why she had to do this. What was the point? You know, he sort of always knew what the plan was in his head. They were going to live together like three bachelors. That's what he assumed. Yeah. Why can't you just be one of the lads? One of the lads. The that's, that's exactly. Because there's that line where he sort of said, I haven't really thought about you leaving. I mean, why would you want to leave him? Isn't this, isn't this perfectly nice? But there's also the last line of the song gives him away. It's not really about men and women. Why can't we be more like me? Like me. Genius. That's what it's all about. Exactly. Although, of course, if he did meet himself, he'd probably be exhausted and infuriated. Yes, <laughs> probably. I love the story. Uh, Liz, you, you, you probably have this a million times, but the story about how that song came about. Well, basically, Alan and Rex went through quite quite a few women <laughs> in their lives and, and they were talking about, you know, they were walking through the park and chatting about that, how women have, you know, done this and done that or whatever. And Rex did actually say to him, Alan, dear boy, he said, if we were homosexual, I'd marry you. Because <laughs> <laughs> basically, he's, and Alan from that got, why can't a woman be more like a man? And when he presented him, when he presented him with the lyric, he did, I mean, Rex read it through, 
didn't laugh at all, closed the book and said, quite right. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. (laughs) So the next scene uh, is Act 2, Scene 5, and we're at Mrs Higgins' house. And we haven't seen a whole lot of Mrs Higgins, but she has this pivotal part to play because she is an alternative person who, who Eliza does know and who she can seek some sanctuary with. So there's this gorgeous little scene with Eliza and Mrs Higgins having tea in the garden and Eliza's been telling Mrs Higgins about the events of the previous evening and Mrs Higgins is appalled although perhaps not surprised knowing her son as she does and then Higgins turns up and is furious that Eliza has has come to his mother's house Uh, but his mother is amazing and takes Eliza's side and says, however did you learn manners with my son around? (laughs) Let's just talk about that scene briefly because Higgins is trying to sort of order her to come back, but he does try and ask nicely and he he does try in his own way to sort of appeal to her and say, well, you know, I I, I sort of miss you in a way. Why doesn't she come back? I think she might have been wavering until until she sings I Can Do Without You and he comes in and goes, I did it. My God, I... And then she goes, oh, forget it. This is never going to work. I'm out of here, you know. She wants him to know that she's a person in her own right and she can match him, you know, toe for toe and you know, head to head and all that. And and, and uh, he does try and get emotion out of her, which is which is really cruel, saying, you know, but I will miss you. Oh, don't, don't do this to me. You know, it's you're being cruel now. Um, but she equally knows that... Like if she went back to him without asserting herself, it would go back to exactly the way it was before. And she can't do that. She simply can't do that. So she has to make sure that he is is quite, quite convinced that she is now a different person and she, she's meeting him head on. And they are a team. But, you know, he doesn't look down on her. He doesn't treat her appallingly. But then, you know, singing without you. I mean, and again, that's a funny, funny story about without you because Rex refused. He said, I'm not I'm not gonna stand the stage while I'm sung out. <laughs> so they didn't they never rehearsed that scene for a long, long time. Eventually that scene had to be rehearsed. And uh, before they did, Moss went to him and said, um, you're gonna look more like a horse's ass going off and then coming back on again, you know, so get on and do it. But then Alan added the end bit, you know, by George, I did it. Mm. And so there was no applause. And so he thought, oh, that's okay, that's okay. So, okay. so I'm not sitting there while she sings a song and gets applause. I can join in the end. It's partly me. And he was thrilled with that last little bit. <laughs> oh, Lord. <laughs> he, was so, he was so Higgins. It's so interesting. I mean, he was, wasn't he? But, I mean, the genius thing about that, motivated by ego from Rex, is that the audience then doesn't have a chance to applaud until the end of the show because everything just barrels on through. Right. And so then they can go bananas at the end. <laughs> it's that whole thing of delay. Occasionally they applauded his exit, saying, um, I am my own... Was it my, my own fire or whatever. That was the applause. She yeah. didn't get but, it. Which is so galling because, again, she and she she's just outsmarted him. She's just beaten him at his own game. He started to play quoting Milton and Keats and now she's quoting all those things and rather than going off and storming off and raging to herself like she does at the start of the show in Just You Wait, she's saying it to his face and she's calm and she's collected and she's saying the world will still turn, you know. Yeah. It's, a very, it's a very important pivotal scene because it's a scene where we realise that Higgins' old tricks won't work anymore and that she's exceeded his expectations and surpassed him. He tries at the beginning, it's all about status at the beginning of the scene, can I try and still hold my old status with you? No, I can't, or then I'm lost. And then that's the scene where he makes it very clear in Pygmalion that he's not interested in her being slave, he's not interested in her just giving in. That's where he talks about you need more than a thick pair of lips and a thick pair of boots to kick you. That's the point at which he becomes really proud of her and has that thing. You're a consort battleship. Ultimately, now you're exactly what I, you know, what I wanted you to be. But of course, she doesn't need to be empowered by a man anymore, so she can just move on. Yeah. yeah. And and he goes to strike her as well. He makes as if to strike mm. her. 
Charles, I watched last night, I, I watched three different versions of that moment because it's the scene that I, it's the moment I had a lot of trouble with when we were rehearsing because we had, you know, does he really strike her? Is he really mean? Yeah, yeah, he yeah, says, yeah. I'll wring your neck for you. Yes. And, and does he really? And in the original, in Pygmalion, the film, he just grabs her by the shoulders and says the line. In that kind of I'll kill you way that doesn't really mean it, just says the line. In My Fair Lady, he goes to her with his hands and then pulls back. Yeah. And in Peter O'Toole's version of Pygmalion, which they filmed, he pulls, pushes her back on a chaise long and throttles her <laughs> up and down like a rag doll. Oh. <laughs> wow. So I didn't... So we came somewhere in the middle, I think, we chose for that yeah. one. I think we did too. Because <laughs> also, I guess her experience of men is that that's what they do. Men, men are violent. Her father is a violent man. It doesn't get his own way. He'll be charming. They will hit you if you don't do what he says. And, and Higgins has prided himself on not being that man all along. Absolutely. And he's mm. debased himself. Yeah, that he's shown to be a man who's not interested in that. He doesn't want to hit her. He doesn't respect anyone who would do that. It's very clear in, in the play. And I think it's important that the audience gets that, that he never comes across as a man who might hit her. Mm, mm, it's just a thing he says because he's lost control. Mm. Yeah. Right. He's lost control and mm. it's provoked something that is going to explode in the in the next song. We are now going to hear this whole section which is without you sung by Anna O'Byrne with a little bit of Martin Fisher at the end leading into I've grown accustomed to her face sung by Martin Fisher with me on the old Joanna. So this is a recording we made of the last 8 or 9 minutes of My Fair Lady. What a fool I was, what a dominated fool, to think you were the earth and sky. What a fool I was, what an adult-pated fool, what a mutton-headed dolt was I. No, my reverberating friend, you are not the beginning and the end. You impudent hussy. There isn't an idea in your head or a word in your mouth that I haven't put there. There'll be spring every year without you. England still will be here without you. There'll be fruit on the tree and a shore by the sea. There'll be crumpets and tea without you. Art and music will thrive without you. Somehow Keats will survive without you And there still will be rain on that plain down in Spain Even that will remain without you I can do without you You dear friend who talk so They can still rule the land without you Windsor Castle will stand without you And without much ado We can all muddle through without you Without your pulling it the tide comes in Without your twirling it the earth can spin Without your pushing them the clouds roll by If they can do without you ducky so can I I shall not feel alone without you I can stand on my own without you 
So go back in your shell I can do bloody well without By George, I really did it I did it, I did it I said I'd make a woman And indeed I did I knew that I could do it I knew it, I knew it I said I'd make a woman And succeed, I did Eliza, you're magnificent Five minutes ago You were a millstone around my neck Now well, Now you're a tower of strength Consort battleship. I like you like this. Goodbye, Professor Higgins. I shall not be seeing you again. Mother? Mother! What is it, Henry? What has happened? She's gone. Of course, dear. What did you expect? Well, what am I to do? Do without, I suppose. And so I shall. If the Higgins oxygen burns up her little lungs, let her seek some stuffiness that suits her. She's an owl, sickened by a few days of my sunshine. Very well, let her go. I can do without anybody. I can certainly do without her. I have my own soul, my own spark of divine fire. Bravo, Eliza. grown accustomed to her face. She almost makes the day begin. I've grown accustomed to the tune. She whistles night and noon. Her smiles, her frowns, her ups, her downs. A second nature to me now. Like breathing out and breathing in I was serenely independent and content before we met Surely I could always be that way again And yet I've grown accustomed to her looks Accustomed to her voice Accustomed to her face Maddie Freddy what an infantile idea. What a heartless, wicked, brainless thing to do. But she'll regret it. Oh, she'll regret it. It's doomed before they even take the vow. I can see her now, Mrs. Freddy Ainsford Hill, in some wretched little flat above a store. I can see her now, not a penny in the till, and the bill collectors beating on the door. She'll try to teach the things I taught her, and end up selling flowers instead. Ha! Begging for her bread and water, while her husband has breakfast in bed. In a year or so, when she's prematurely grey and the blossom on her cheek has turned to chalk, she'll come home and lo, he'll have up and run away with some social climbing heiress from New York. Poor Eliza, how simply frightful, how humiliating, how delightful. How poignant it will be on that inevitable night when she hammers on my door in tears and rags. 
miserable and lonely, repentant and contrite. Will I take her in or hurl her to the wolves? Show her kindness or the treatment she deserves? Will I take her back or throw the baggage out? I'm a most forgiving man, the sort who never could, ever would, take a position and staunchly never budge. <laughs> Just a most forgiving man, but I will never take her back. If she were crawling on her knees, let her promise to atone, let her shiver, let her moan. I will slam the door and let the hellcat freeze. Marry Freddy. So used to hear her say good morning every day Her joys, her woes, her highs, her lows Are second nature to me now Like breathing out and breathing in I'm very grateful she's a woman And so easy to forget Rather like a habit one can always break and yet, I've grown accustomed to the trace of something in the air, accustomed to her face. I want to be a lady in a flower shop, instead of selling flowers at the corner of Tottenham Court Road. But they won't take me unless I talk more genteel. He said he could teach me. Well, here I am, ready to pay, not asking any favour. And he treats me as if I was dirt. I know what lessons cost and I'm ready to pay. It's almost irresistible. She's so deliciously low, so, so horribly dirty. I washed my face and hands before I came. I did. Eliza, where the devil are my slippers? stuff Anna Roburn and Martin it, it's so hard recording remotely at the best of times but with this sort of material <laughs> it, it, it's almost impossible but you, you do it with aplomb so thank you so much for, for doing that and it's wonderful hearing it again as always thank you to Auburn Jam Music for making that magic happen now we are in the in the, the home straight but this is a big bit this is the the, the denouement of the show I've grown accustomed to her face, leading in to the final scene in Higgins' study. Charlie, do you want to talk a bit about the the, the process and, and the experience of performing this song, which is like this sort of amazing internal monologue of Higgins, bouncing between different uh, emotions and uh, ideas? 
How did you find that in rehearsal? Like we mentioned earlier, that lyric, like breathing out and breathing in, it's, it's so the simplicity and beauty of the lyric throughout the song. It's an absolute gift this moment because people are interested in what he's going to do, what's really inside him. And what you get from the song is, yes, the bluster and the, no, I'll have my revenge. But you do get a lost boy as well. And that's nice for him to realise at the moment that the audience is realising it. And it's a, it's a reveal because he doesn't know this about himself until now. Right. And it's interesting because Eliza's journey has been incremental. It's been a, lear- a steep learning curve the whole way. And Higgins resolutely seems to refuse to make any sort of uh, kind of progress. And this is the first time where you get this glimpse that actually he is upset. Yeah. And, and also, like I've, like I've sort of been saying throughout, that if little moments from earlier, if you drop them in, just little bits where you think, oh, that was something. That was a, a little flicker of humanity in there somewhere. But then completely then carry on. It's it's the closest you get to the, the fabled romance of this show. He's going to miss her and he, the, the noises of her coming and going is second nature. He likes her around. He wants her around. And um, and it's it's very sweet, I think. Yeah. Uh, well, it's, it's touching because the, the, the language is, is, is guarded still. He's not saying, yeah. I oh, really yeah. miss Even her. Even to himself. It's understated. Uh, no, I don't. <laughs> yeah. But, uh, she can go to hell. But there's also yeah. this, the strings are telling you a different story every time the strings play. Yes. Da, 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 da. It's so lyrical mm. and gorgeous. And he's not sung anything remotely like that before. It's the simplicity of the things that he loves about her. Like the, 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 so I'm, I'm so used to hear her say good morning every day. It's such a lovely, simple, daily thing. And it's, it's domestic. And that's the genius of these lyrics, isn't it? That he's spent so long using these sort of like GNS style kind of brilliant wordplay that's very witty, but superficial. And it's only when he starts to use the monosyllabic words, her smiles, her frowns, her upside downs, that you see the emotional authenticity, which you've seen in Eliza from the first scene. Mm. Yeah, yeah. But it's taken him the whole whole play to get to that point. It's that moment too where he starts singing more and he's completely... Uh, you know adrift at, at, at that point he's he's in her world he's in the world of singing and it's sort of very touching to hear this man who has had such control of language and of um cadence go into this sort of tentative sung just the vulnerability of that, that right mm. because you actually he hasn't really sung before he's sort of and i don't know liz you could probably speak to this better than i can that you know obviously rex harrison wasn't a musician he wasn't a singer and so he his name has become a verb now you know you talk to actors say oh just do rex harrison it um where you kind of speak on pitch because he although he didn't sing he had the most remarkable range to his spoken voice eliza it was so high um and so he'd sort of speak on pitch how how much do you think that was always the plan how much was it written around him it was written it was written for him entirely i mean and and alan said that that funnily enough he always heard rex throughout all the rest of his songs every song he wrote he always had rex in his mind funnily Mm. enough um (laughs) He said, because he, he was so musical. He, he, okay, mm. he didn't have a singer's voice, but he was so musical in his cadences and um, his timing uh, was superb. Um, and, and when they first heard him sing, I think he sang Sweet Molly Malone to them. They went, and, and Fritz said, that's fine. And, uh, and then he went off and had some proper singing lessons. He was trying to sound like Pavarotti. And when they came back and they heard him, they went, oh, my God, stop going. Wherever you're going, just stop it now. And he was so relieved because he was getting himself in such a state that he couldn't sing it. So all the songs, I think, I don't think anything was written without Rex in mind, actually. And this one especially, you know, 
Larry Freddy, what a you know, right there and then down there again and then then but then at the end, but I'm so used to hear her say good morning every day. You know, that was that's where the vulnerability and the tenderness comes in and and yes, the insecurity of what his life is going to be without her. Um I I like you, Anna, I used to watch that every night and I, every mm. night I would just marvel at, at the song and the actor. Um mm. it was it was I think the highlight, and I was very always tearing mm, up. Mm. It's a it's a wonderful opportunity for Higgins to just be on his own with no one to peacock around, you know, no one to to, yeah. to top or to or to dismiss. Or... That's why I, I I get so angry when I see productions where they have sets flying in around him to get him back into his into his home. You know, mm. it is a front cloth scene. Whatever yeah. you, it's a front cloth scene, to, and you go walk through the front door, then the front cloth flies out, and then he turns on the 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 record player or something, whatever it is. But you don't have you don't have him stand in the middle of the stage, all this scenery flying in around him. And part of its brilliance is that you see him go through the things in real time. It isn't an aria of one thought and one emotion that's played out for three minutes. Yeah. It's a sequence. It's a sequence of him struggling with different thoughts and trying them out and going, no, that doesn't work. What about this? No, that's never going to work again. I am now different. I am now changed. And the audience sees that happen in real time. And I, mm. I was thinking about this. this the, the premiere was in 1956. A few years later is Gypsy, 1959, I yeah. think. And I don't think Rose's turn would exist were it not for this. I'm just throwing it out mm, there. I, I, I don't know. I might be completely wrong. But I can't think of another example or, or a better example before then of a, of a number at the end of the show which combines fragments of earlier numbers. Yes, And it's right. basically somebody experiencing, like you say, in, a, in real time, a sort of breakdown. Yeah. But uh, I, that's, that's my little theory that I have to myself in, the, in terms of the development of the art form and the furthering of musical theatre. Well, I like it. I think we'll all go with that. Mm. Thank you very much. I'm, I'm glad you agree. That's, you know, that's what you're here for. Um, right, um, but let's just then talk about what happens at the end because hooray, he realises he has emotions. He, you know, he, the, the, the armour is pierced. And he goes home and he puts on the records of her voice and they're very early lessons. So he's listening to her voice. She comes back in, turns off the, the record player and says... I wash my face and hands before I come. I did. Isn't that just a complete capitulation? You know, she's she's just said I can live without you. The world doesn't need you. I'm fine. And then she comes back. And what a lot of people struggle with this show is the fact she does come back. How do you how do you sort of rationalise that for yourself as an as an actor, Liz? Well. I rationalise it in the fact that um, during the time where she's been walking the streets, like he's been walking the streets, she's been thinking to herself, we are a team. And I think even though he calls you a consort battleship, he knows I've walked out on him. And let's see what it's like. I'll, I'll go back. And if, if it doesn't work, I'll leave again. Be, but I mean, I think she's she's as lost without him as he is without her, actually, at the end of it, um, because she's got nowhere to go. Maybe Mrs Higgins would take her in. But I, I, always, I always felt... She went back with a purpose to say, we're going to meet together. You know, we are equal now and we can carry on together. Um, and so what he does say, when he does do the whole thing about when Eliza wearing my slippers. Yeah, and what what is that line? Because it's, it's, it's delightfully ambiguous. He's teasing her, isn't he? You know, where the devil are my slippers? Which is the, the way the row started in the first place, you know. Um, mm. And she just goes, in her mind, just go and find them yourselves. You know, I'm not, I'm not going to do it anymore. Well, yeah. Can I read a line from Pygmalion, which, which made it all so much clearer for me? Because we, like all of you, I imagine, struggled with that ending and that line, which apparently allegedly was brought in by the studio when they made the film with Leslie Howard and Wendy Hiller, because they, they, the, they had the ending where he, she goes and he stands on the balcony and says, ah, and then it didn't play well with audiences, apparently, so they, they came up with the Where the Devil Are My Slippers. 
But this is this is from the scene between Eliza and Higgins in Pygmalion. He says, uh, "You call me a brute because you couldn't buy a claim on me by fetching my slippers and finding my spectacles. You were a fool. I think a woman fetching a man's slippers is a disgusting sight. Did he ever fetch your slippers? I think a good deal more of you for throwing them in my face." Hmm? There you go. That makes the last line of the play completely make sense, right? It because does. He's, he's not yeah. saying go back to being the slave. He's saying, yeah. we understand each other now." But, you know, interestingly enough, when, when Shaw originally wrote it, Eliza did leave, you know, and had this mm. life with Freddie, which I still can't get my head around anyway. But, uh, yeah. <laughs> and apparently Mrs. Patrick Campbell left and, and he was something about, he says something to her or something about, go and buy me some gloves or something like that. Yes. And the opening night, she, she storms out and, he, and that's supposed to be the end of play, but she comes back in and goes, what size? <laughs> and Shaw was furious because that completely blew the end. Well, apparently Shaw went away and came back 100 performances later and beer Boehm Tree, who was playing Higgins, was throwing flowers of bouquet, bouquets of flowers out the window at her. He changed it so completely. And Shaw wrote this alternate ending, apparently, where he stands at the balcony and watches her go, storming off, being her own woman. And he turns around and says, Galatea! And the curtain comes down as a way of saying, yeah. fantastic, she's the person she can yeah. be. I, you're absolutely right uh, to bring up that uh, thing about Mr. Tr- Sir Tree, uh, which is, uh, but Shaw, Shaw actually wrote to him uh, about these bouquets that he was throwing as the curtain came down. He was furious. He said, your ending is damnable. You ought to be shot. <laughs> <laughs> which I think is probably Brilliant. very true. Very Higginsian. Very, very, very Higgins. Uh, Charlie, <laughs> I know you want to talk a bit about that Shaw epilogue because he wrote this epilogue to the play uh, so that for posterity, people would know that is not the ending of My Fair Lady. It's not a romance. But I think he probably wrote it as a result of so many people going, you know, is it, is it a romance? Is it? And he's going, no, it's not a romance, you know. Um, anyway, and I'll show you why it isn't. Um, but I just like the way that they end up um, in his epilogue, Eliza Pickering and Higgins, li- um, living, I'm not sure if she's living with them, but she's married Freddie and they have a shop. Um, and I want to read you this. Uh, uh, and so it came about that Eliza's luck held and the expected opposition to the flower shop melted away. The shop is in the arcade of a railway station not very far from the V&A Museum. And if you live in that neighbourhood, you may go there any day and buy a buttonhole from Eliza. I love that. I think it's <laughs> great. Mm. But then the shop doesn't do very well in, in, in Shaw's kind of, you know, postscript. The shop doesn't do very well. And so they move back in with Higgins and Pickering and they sort of seek sanctuary there. That's right. There's, a, there's some amazingly caustic lines about how Higgins sort of endures Freddy because he just doesn't, doesn't register that he even exists and sort of things. <laughs> but he's not shocked that he's out of work because he's not fit for anything and that's fine. He should just do nice things for Eliza. And Pickering's often having to tell Eliza to go a bit easier on Higgins. (laughs) (laughs) Because the the power dynamic has shifted so much she's having to be called down. I wish wish in a way that everybody knew of this because now when you do My Fair Lady the whole Me Too comes into play and um, the latest production I I found terribly ambiguous and I had real problem with the end real problem with the end. So this is the Bartlett Share directed one that was on Broadway. Mm, Yes she came on and and he was almost hysterical, not hysterical but he was he was break, breaking down. Eliza, where the devil are my slippers? She looks at him and then she puts her hand on her heart and then she walks to him, puts her hand on his cheek and I thought, oh my God, she's going to kiss him? And then she sort of steps back in, hand back on her heart and then she runs through the auditorium. She leaves again. And then that's the end. You know, and also the music doesn't come in. You know, the wonderful thing about the end for me is where the devil are my slippers? 
Now, da, 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 you know, it, but, there, but there was this long gap of silence where she went through this whole charade of, you know, my heart and I love you, but I've got to right. go and all this. And, and I, I said to Bart, I said, I'm sorry, but I don't, I don't get it. And he, and he said, well, no, she's going to the future. You know, this is her, this is her going. I said, but no, I said, no, I'm sorry, it's your secret. I don't, he says, not my secret. Everyone, no one understood. I really believe no one understood. The, the one that Trevor Nunn did was still a bit controversial where he looks at her and crosses his arms and she looks at him and crosses her arms and then and then they both start laughing together. Um, mm. uh, and that brought um, some people, you know, like, my gosh, that's terrible. You can't do it that way. But this was so... Drastic. It was so radical. Is it an unwinnable situation now? I don't know. I mean, it's interesting. And, this, and we talked about Carousel in a previous episode. And Carousel is another one that often gets slapped with this label of being outdated and misogynist because people don't take the time to really look at it and interrogate it properly. And they confuse the, the period in which it's written or, the, or, the, or what the characters say as somehow being synonymous with the, with the message of the piece. Like it's espousing all the things that every character says. And I just, I, I feel like, that does not solve the problem, changing the ending, whereas smart direction and smart acting does. And see, I've seen productions of this where Eliza and Higgins meet again at the end and they share a glance and nothing is said. There's no act, there's no embrace. There's No one gets anywhere near the slippers. It's just an acknowledgement and you go, yeah, yeah, yeah. they are. she's back, but she's not back to be his slave. Back, 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 right. in, back in her own terms. And I did also see a terrible, terrible Amdram production of it where he said, Eliza, where the devil are my slippers? And then she went and got them and knelt down oh my God. put the slippers on. And I was like, oh what? what has this whole play been about? Why have we spent three hours? I think it is winnable. It maybe says something more about audience expectations today that we're uncomfortable with seeing a young single woman at on stage at the end still being single. The other thing that that doesn't sit well with me, you know, about this sort of you know, oh, is it is it a romance, isn't it? Is that the audience doesn't listen to her properly in Wintergarden? She says very, very clearly that she doesn't want any romantic feelings from him. Yeah, that she yeah. just wants more friendly. Like I just want yes. you to just not be in, say these horrible nicknames to me all the time. Sometimes, <laughs> but um, you know. And he says for the fun of it, because it's fun, because we are fun together. That's the more uncomfortable thing. For, to me that in this day we still are not listening to women when they say very clearly what they want <laughs> um, and that also we're still uncomfortable as an audience with seeing this beautiful Cinderella story and still seeing a woman who is happily single at the end of the show and in fact saying I am fine by myself and I mean I think Eliza knows that she is okay that she will be okay whereas Higgins doesn't have the emotional intelligence or wherewithal to be able to negotiate this situation without mm. her mm. and it wasn't a romantic for Charlie and I this was not a romantic thing at all between them I actually thought that she came back just to be a friend um but but him. I thought yeah well not maybe not even I just think that she like I don't think it's her function to save him or anything like that I I, I used to think that they would teach together that she would have the really good mm bedside manner with the students and then they, <laughs> that they could help some other flower girls who want to go and be a lady in a flower shop with their lovely pots around them and <laughs> able to make a little bit more money and that he had the brilliance and that that, that was their their team but I, I you know I just thought it was so fascinating in, in coming back that we put all of these funny 
romantic or something else feelings on them. And actually, she's just she's just come back to start the conversation again. She's come back to say, game on, you know. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And she knows that she's okay. I also used to think sometimes maybe she's, Liz, as you said, she's been wandering the streets and then perhaps she sees him go into his house looking very, very sad and not the Higgins that she knows. She has a lot more agency throughout than we often give her credit for because the surface reading and this is the thing that happens with musicals I think especially once we've seen a movie but also once something's so familiar that we get a vision of it in our head it's like oh the man makes a bet right he takes a woman she lives with him and you get this vision that's simplified but we forget that he doesn't make the bet she has the agency she comes to his house and Mm. and starts the whole thing she initiates it Yeah. Mm. so from the outset she is an active player she's not some passive puppet and possibly like the artwork that famous artwork of Higgins puppeteering Eliza doesn't help with this feeling that it's just about men controlling women. But I, I, I think it's more subtle than we give it credit for. But that's the problem. There's a whole Me Too problem, is that that's, they, they think it's, it's you know, the powerful man with this little girl, this little vulnerable girl, and what are they doing to her? Yeah. They're changing her. And, and um, I mean, they even, they even cut out some of the lyrics because they thought, they thought they were too misogynistic. I think it's also the world we live in in terms of the way things get reported. And you write something on the page, and if you want to write an article that says, this is a terrible show filled with women-hating creatures, you go, okay... Here's, uh, you, and, you, and, you, and you quote those and on paper you go well that does look horrible but it doesn't take into account the fact that in the theatre you're being given multiple messages at all times and because someone says it you don't necessarily believe it the music's often undercutting it and you cheer Eliza at the end you don't cheer the fact that he's a misogynist you don't cheer him to him no, you no, cheer exactly. her going no. yeah tell him but even on the page My Fair Lady is full of, of formidable women uh, Mrs Pierce Mrs Higgins the Queen of Transylvania even Mrs Hopkins Eliza as landlady and it's full of sort of inept men um, (laughs) and um and deeply deeply flawed men you know she doesn't go to meet the king of transylvania at the end it's the queen and then she dances with the queen's son and you know poor old freddie is being ordered around by his mother pickering has got his own set of things going on Doolittle's, you know (laughs) violent and to me that's the thing as well again we we, in our in our analysis of it we we sort of think it's one thing and then we do our analysis based on what we think it is as opposed to yeah. actually what we're right. seeing on the stage. I've never bought into the idea that the voice of the of My Fair Lady or Pygmalion is in the least misogynist. I've never bought into yeah. that mm, at all because mm, of exactly mm. what Anna just said, that there are strong mm. men in there and mm. they're very clearly put in there to show that these women are strong and don't need a man's approval. Mm. And for, for Joe Pitcher, who was our director, for Beth, who was our Eliza and me, it was never on the table that this was a, a story with, with will they end up together. That was never part of our discussion. And I think at the end of the day, we're always going to judge any production of this and the ending and the way the ending is done by where we're at in a, as a society yeah. and also looking at where they were at when they made it, which is why it's so funny looking at those I'm going to wring your neck moments, you know, they yes. reflect the society yeah. as it was at the time. Yeah. What we were sort of touching on there is that the women actually say more with less. They speak less. But Higgins is full of bluster and says a lot that doesn't really mean a thing. All mouth and no trousers. <laughs> I love that, Charlie. <laughs> Can I just share something that I discovered in those first scenes? I realised after we'd been rehearsing for a while that the times where he turns on her the hardest is when she makes that sound. Ah, that sound. He, he He repeats the line a lot, don't snivel. It's something he says a lot. And I think for him it's because he doesn't see why she can't be a strong person, why she has to rely on this emotional weakness, this, oh, I'm all injured thing. I, don't, I think that's what annoys him the most. Right. He thinks she's better than that. Well, we could talk about this all day, but we, we do need to wrap things up. Guys, it's been such a pleasure, but you'll be delighted to know we do have one final round of the quiz oh, just gosh, to tee things off. Uh, so grab your buzzers, prepare yourselves. 
these first three questions are anagrams. Anagram. Okay. So these are all character names of people in My Fair Lady. So the first one, which character's name is an anagram of Perm Scare? Mrs. Pierce? <gasps> Ah. He didn't. He didn't actually ding. I didn't. I didn't. Oh, 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 I did, oh. Forfeited. Forfeited. No, I'm, I'm feeling generous. I'll, 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 I'll give you the point, Martin. Anyway, sorry. But, uh, you know, just let that be a warning. <laughs> yeah, sorry. I'm blatantly cheating now. Just try and get past Lizzie's loss. <laughs> yeah. Desperate measures. Number two. Who's which character's name is an anagram of defoliated troll? Anna. Alfred P. Doolittle. No. It's. Alfred Doolittle without the P. I, uh, so you're, you're absolutely right. I'll give you the point. Um, I, I realised I hadn't put the P into the anagram maker. We don't know what it stands for. So, you know, I mean, it could be anything. <laughs> the anagram for Alfred P. Doolittle would have been deported flotilla. What do you mean anagram make? You didn't do them yourself. Uh, yeah, oh, sorry. Cats out the bag. <laughs> cheat, cheat, cheat. Uh, number three, the final anagram. Whose anagram is pigeonholing chuckler? Anna. Colonel Pickering. You're absolutely right. <laughs> Colonel Hugh Pickering. If we're being Colonel Hugh Danny. Pickering. We will give you, oh, we, we will yeah. give you the point. Absolutely. Whoa, well done. Yes. Very good. Final questions. Number four. For the 1981 revival of My Fair Lady, Rex Harrison again played Higgins. How old was he by that point? I'll take any guesses. This is 1981. Se- 76 or 77. Okay. What are you going to guess, Charlie? Mine was going to be 76. Okay. I'm going for 83. I'm going for 82. We will share the points between Liz and Charlie because he was actually 73. Oh, okay. Oh. But the even more amazing thing is that the original Mrs. Higgins, Kathleen Nesbitt, was also in that production. And by that point, she was 93. Wow. Which is amazing. It's the only woman yeah. they could find who was old enough to play his mother. Right. Number five, Martine McCutcheon won the Olivier Award for Best Actress in a Musical for her performance as Eliza in 2002. Who was sat behind her at the ceremony refusing to clap? Liz. Jonathan Price. We all know that one. Jonathan Price. It's amazing. He makes no effort to even look remotely no. pleased for her. I could watch that clip on a loop. Brilliant. I think we all got that point. Uh, number six, after uh, McCutcheon and Price left that production, both their successors went on to win Olivier's, which is unusual uh, for a second cast. Who were they? Liz, I heard a bang first. Oh, okay. Well, it's Alex Jennings and Joanna Riding. Absolutely right, yeah. Number seven. In the Family Guy episode, one if by clam, two if by sea, which regular character takes on the Henry Higgins role in their My Fair Lady parody? Charlie. Stewie. Stewie, absolutely right. (laughs) He then proceeds to teach his new English neighbour, Eliza, how to speak like a lady. Their parody of The Reign in Spain centres around the phrase, the life of the wife is... How does it end? Does anyone know? I have got options. So is it the life of the wife is full of toil and strife? B, ended by the knife? (laughs) C, best spent in fife? (laughs) D, is where regrets are rife? Anyone know where we go? Anna? Punt in the dark. B. Is ended by the knife. The life of the wife is ended by the knife. That's absolutely right. Well oh, done. Oh, right. Well, it yes. is. I mean, I love Family Guy, but it's an amazing episode. Uh, where he he trains her up to the buy her like birthday party. She's turning three or something. She arrives at the top of the stairs and says to all her guests, "How kind of you all to come," <laughs> and then wets herself. Um, uh, Last two questions. Uh, number nine, uh, Columbia Pictures announced a big screen remake of My Fair Lady in 2008. Who was due to play Eliza? Oh, no. Anna. 
I broke my glockenspiel in a moment <laughs> of frenzy and fury. <laughs> um, <laughs> Carrie Mulligan. Absolutely right. Yeah. Oh. Liz, do you know do you know the scoop? What happened with that? It was, it was uh, thing, yeah, there's a big problem with CBS at the time. A lot of problems with, with the rights of My Fair Lady. Um, right. So uh, it was a big mess. Anyway, yeah, sadly it didn't happen. Oh, I, I would have liked to have seen that version because Emma Thompson was going to work on the script and Kerry Mulligan would have been great. Yeah, yeah I read it. The script was great. It was, it was, was it? Uh, it, it wasn't brought up to date, but the lag was more colloquial. And, uh, and it was, it was, it, I thought it was fabulous. But anyway, there we go. Not to be seen. Um, and finally, uh, a member of the Piece by Piece podcast team played Henry Higgins in a school production. Who was it? Was it A, me, B, Joe Davison, C, Nikki Davison, or D, Olivia Dowden? Let's hear, let's hear all your guesses. Charlie? It was Joe Bunker. That's your guess. Okay, I'll take it. Anna, what do you think? I, I look. I'm just looking at her on screen here, and I think Olivia Dowden. I think, I think, I think she's a dark horse. For okay, it. okay. What about you, Liz? I'm going to go with Joe Davison. Okay, and Martin. Nikki, Nikki. <laughs> I'm flummoxed because I did as well. So go on. That would get you the well point. Done. <laughs> there she is. <laughs> Nikki Davidson was Henry Higgins. A marvellous I very nearly uh, made that a question about my mum because my mum was in My Fair Lady recently and I got the pleasure of watching my mum play Mrs Higgins, making her oh. return to the Amdram stage after an ab- absence of about 30 years. Um, and, I, and she was a bit upset I didn't ask her to be on this episode. Uh, <laughs> but I did offer her the olive branch of, of getting to say a line. So I am going to give the last word to my mother. Bravo, Eliza. There you go. In a full Lady Bracknell voice. That's my mum. Guys and gals, this has been an absolute delight and I could happily do this forever. But just before we finish, quickly, the results of the quiz. So at the end of round one, the runaway leader was Liz Robertson with five and a half points. Yay! The winner of round two was actually Anna with five points. Which means that the overall winner remains Liz. But Anna, you do get to take away that coveted Yay. silver medal. <laughs> Bring on the Elizas. Um, yes. <laughs> Bravo, Eliza. Bravo. <laughs> to all of our guests today, to Charles Edwards, Martin Fisher, Anna O'Byrne and Liz Robertson, thank you ever so much for being a part of Peace by Peace. It has been a true pleasure. I've been Joe Bunker and this has been Peace by Peace. Thank you for listening. We'd love to hear what you think about Piece by Piece. Don't forget you can email us piecebypiecetalkshow at gmail.com and you can find us on Twitter and Instagram at pbp underscore podcast or on Facebook at Piece by Piece Podcast. This episode was recorded remotely by Joe and Nikki Davison for Auburn Jam Music. Our guests were Charles Edwards, Martin Fisher, Anna O'Byrne and Liz Robertson. Our theme music is by Ben Cox and our production assistant is Olivia Dowden. Piece by Piece is devised and presented by Joe Bunker and produced by Pint of Wine. Thank you for listening to Piece by Peace. Do join us again.